the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out demons. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself, and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal judgment, eternal damnation. Because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. There came then his brethren and his mother, standing without, and they said unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said to him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. He answered them, saying, Who is my mother, or my brethren? He looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study. Our name, the Unchanging Word, reflects the fact that the eternal Word of God is never changed and never will. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never ends. Dr. Mitchell reviews the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. But in so doing, let's hear Jesus' statement that all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now listen, Jesus died for you and me. First of all, people, sons of men, he died for us to take away our sins. And because of his death on the cross, God is now able to forgive all sins, no matter what. That includes yours and mine. Salvation is no longer a matter of the sin, it is a matter of the Son, Jesus Christ. Have you received him? If you have not, will you believe in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? He forgives you. He loves you. And in doing so, you will have done the will of God. And this will bring about a new relationship. Here's Dr. Mitchell, Mark chapter 3, verse 29, on the Unchanging Word Bible broadcast. Good day, friends. Again, we come to you with studies in the Gospel through Mark. I, I sometimes wonder if I shouldn't go a little faster as we seek to expound this scripture. But when I think of the truths that are involved, and knowing that so many who listen in have had very little instruction in the Word of God, and knowing that a great many are in need, and knowing that our Savior can meet that need, and as He met the needs of the people of His day, He can meet our needs today. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a glorious Lord. Now, we are dealing in our last lesson uh, with the unpardonable sin as found in chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And we were discussing, you remember, first of all, their accusation. 
they accused him of having Beelzebub, and by the prince of the demons he cast out demons. In other words, they were opposed to his person and to his work. Indeed, I would say there they questioned his motives. He was from heaven. They said, you're from hell. And you find this both in Matthew 12 as well as in John chapter 8, where they accused our Savior of being in league with hell. So they not only, they can't deny his works. They can't deny the healing of people. They can't deny the fact that he cast out demons. And how often you have this in the gospel through Mark. From the very first chapter on, you have where he cast out demons. And the demons knew him. They said, you're the son of God. You're the son of the highest. They knew this. They'd heard his teaching. They, they denied the reality. And as I said a moment ago, they questioned his very motives, that he was playing and working in league with hell instead of with God. Now, his argument in verses 23 to 27, his argument is very logical. In fact, how illogical is their accusation? There can be no strength where there's division. And if a kingdom be divided against itself, it can't stand. A house divided against itself can't stand. And if Satan rise up against Satan he, and be divided, he can't stand. In fact, if you're going to take Satan and get some of his, and free, from, free those from the power of Satan, he's got to be stronger than Satan. That's what he says in verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man. Then he will spoil his house. Of course. What had the Lord Jesus been doing? Casting out demons. Where did he find some of them? In the synagogue. But you know when a person is filled with hatred, it's so hated the save they want to kill him. And, and they, can't, they can't misbelieve their own eyes when they see people healed. They came down from Jerusalem. He's casting out demons, healing the sick. They even questioned his moral character, you remember, when he ate with sinners. No, friends. If I'm going to deliver people from the powers of Satan, said the Savior, I've got to first of all bind Satan before I can take his goods. Then he gave to us in verse, in verse 28 that wonderful statement, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. You know, one of those two verses came to my mind when Paul's message in Acts 13. You remember when he said, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man Jesus is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. By this man, through this man, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. All sins shall be forgiven. Now, 29, we come to the unpardonable sin. Now, be the Lord here is still, shall I say, he's come to a climax in his ministry. Because from here on, his ministry entirely changed. 
I'm speaking especially of his, of his teaching ministry. Thus far, he's been teaching the Word of God as he's gone along, and their, their enmity is, is increased. Now he warns them, if you fellows don't look out, you're going to commit the one sin that's unpardonable. Let me read it. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiven us, but is in danger of eternal judgment. Why? What had they done? They said, He hath an unclean spirit. They said in verse 22 that he had Beelzebub, that he cast out demons by the prince of the demons. See? Now, I would say this, and I'll say it very frankly. That these men saw his works. They heard his gracious words. They judged his motives. And that generation was in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. They saw, they heard, and then they declared he was from hell. I repeat it again, they were judging his motives. Now in chapter 2, in chapter 2, when, when he sat down and ate with sinners, uh, they judged his moral character. Why should this man sit down with publicans and sinners and eat with them? If he was a man who was righteous, if he was a real prophet, he wouldn't sit down and consort with sinners. You can see their viewpoint. But you see, Jesus didn't sit down with sinners just to enjoy sinners alone. He said, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came as a physician to deliver these sinners, like Levi, who was a publican, delivered him from his sin, brought him to himself, and healed him. Say, So I say again, the Lord is the one who is able to forgive men and women. But when it comes down to this question of the unpardonable sin, it's the sin against the Spirit of God. Now notice, there is an eternal heaven and life. There is also an eternal judgment to be cast out of the presence of God, eternal night. You've got the two. Now sometimes people ask me the question, is it possible, Mr. Mitchell, that I may have uh, committed the unpardonable sin. I would say primarily, our Lord said this to, a, to religious leaders who had come down from Jerusalem, and they were ascribing to Satan the works of the Spirit of God in our Savior. I repeat it, they saw the work of the Spirit of God in our Savior. They heard his gracious words. But hate and unbelief had filled their hearts. And the Lord is warning them there's such a thing as a sin that cannot be pardoned. Now, you know, I've had people come to me here in Portland, have come to me uh, greatly burdened, crushed, discouraged, down in the dumps, and they have declared that they have committed the unpardonable sin, you see. In fact, they're full of alarm. Let me tell you, my friend, 
If they had committed the unpardonable sin, they wouldn't have been in talking to me. They wouldn't have been despondent. I believe that a person who has, who has committed the unpardonable sin is one who has become so hardened, so hardened, that they ridicule the Savior. They declare that the works of the Spirit of God in our Savior were from hell, that he was energized by the prince of demons. And unbelief persisted in, as I've oftentimes said, produces hardness. I tell you, when a person commits to the unpardonable sin, if I'm talking to someone who feels they've done that, you're not going to be concerned. You're going to be totally indifferent. You're going to be hard in your heart. You'll have no thought of the Savior. So if I'm talking to some today who are disturbed about this, and you feel that you maybe have committed the unpardonable sin, and Satan would have you believe that, too, if he could. Remember, if you had committed the unpardonable sin, you'd be in a case where your heart had been so, your heart was so hard, your heart was so hard, you'd be so indifferent. You'd care less whether Christ had come or not. No, if you're concerned, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Now, there's a certain sense in which it can be committed today, but I believe personally, originally, he's dealing with these religious leaders who saw his works, saw the Savior, heard his gracious words, and still said he was from hell. Now, before I leave this, I think I ought to mention two others. There are those who believe that unbelief is the unpardonable sin. Well, if you just stop and think for a moment, every one of us, uh, have the sin of unbelief to a more or less degree. There was a time when I wasn't saved. I was out, out of Christ, living in unbelief. But the Lord saved me and pardoned me that, didn't he? In, in fact, the apostle Peter, you remember, said in chapter 3 of the book of Acts, he's talking to the, to the same leaders, the same people of Israel, he said, I wot not, speaking of the death of our Savior, I wot not that through ignorance that you did it, as did also your rulers. And he's still pleading with them to accept the Savior. Now, unbelief is not the unpardonable sin. However, I must say this, that unbelief persisted in leads to the same conclusion, eternal judgment. And I'm quoting our Lord Jesus when we read, He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. On the other hand, he could say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life, shall not come into judgment. To who? Those who accept the Savior. I tell you, my friend, there's a heaven to be gained through simple faith in the Savior by putting your trust in the Savior. And when I talk about trusting the Savior or believing in the Savior, I mean just that. I'm not talking about a, a, an intellectual assent to truth. That doesn't give you life. There must be a relationship between you and the Savior. 
as Paul says, and through this man Jesus is preached unto you. Through Jesus is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins and so on. So I don't think that unbelief, except it be persisted in, is the unpardonable sin. He that hath the Son of God hath life. He that hath not the Son of God shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. What holds back the wrath of God upon a sinful world? The very grace of God. God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But that is not alter the fact that the world, the unbeliever, is already under the wrath of God in this sense. He's already judged if he rejects the Savior. And one of these days, the Lord's going to come in his wrath upon those who've rejected his Son. As Revelation chapter 6 says, they shall cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, who is able to stand? I'm quoting the last part of Revelation chapter 6. I'm thankful to God that we are still living in the day of grace when God is still saving any, 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 and all who will come unto him. Remember again, all sins will be forgiven to anybody who means business with God. Now, one more thing. Someone says, well, Mr. Mitchell, what about the willful sin? Well, that's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 30. The willful sin, the writer of Hebrews has given to us in uh, 10 chapters, he concludes, he concludes his argument in the 10th chapter, Concerning the work of Christ on the cross for man, this man by one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sin. But this man, Christ Jesus, by one sacrifice for sins forever, finished the job, put away sin, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, he goes on in verse 26, If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain looking forward of judgment. Then he ticks up what that willful sin is. In other words, having heard of the Savior who has put away sin, I turn from the Savior and go back to the sacrifices of bulls and of goats. I turn back to something else. There's nothing left but judgment. The willful sin in Hebrews chapter 10 is the despising. He goes on to say, they've despised the person of Christ. They've despised the work of Christ. They've despised the spirit of Christ. Then he goes on to say, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God when one is spurned and despised the person of Christ, despised the work of Christ which he accomplished on the cross, and despised the Spirit of Christ who has come to lead us into all truth? 
No wonder he said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You haven't done that, have you? No. So here you have this question of the unpardonable sin, and I, I'm going to leave that with you today. And, and again, repeat, if you mean business with the Savior, if you really want to be forgiven every sin, remember, he will meet that need. He is saying to you, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, the rest of the chapter, 31 to 35, you have, you have this question of his relationship, a new relationship, 31 to 35. And here he contrasts the spiritual relationship with the natural relationship, the fleshly relationship on earth. There came then his brethren and his mother, standing without, and they sent unto him, calling him. See, there's a big crowd round him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said to him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. He answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? He looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Very, very briefly, you see, our Lord was not only misunderstood by his friends in verse 21, but now he's understood, misunderstood by his family, by Mary, his mother, and his brethren. Now, didn't the Lord love Mary and his brethren? Of course he did. Why, hadn't they lived together for 30 years, approximately 30 years in Nazareth? They knew all about him. But they did not recognize, especially the brethren, didn't recognize his place. I don't want to go into it except to mention John chapter 7, for I read, For neither did his brethren believe on him. There came a time when they did. But in chapter 7 of John, For neither did his brethren believe on him. What the Lord here is giving now is a new relationship. You get your context of chapters 2 and 3. There's a slowly build-up of opposition to the Savior. Until now, they're ready to kill him. He warns them that they're on the verge of committing the unpardonable sin. So he brings out a new, a new revelation, a new relationship. When he says to his brethren, he said, uh, Behold my mother, behold my brethren. He's talking to these disciples who are sitting around him. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. A new relationship. And I'd like to bring it in in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. To as many as received him, his relationship to them, he gives the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Or oh, that wonderful verse in 1 John chapter 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Or take Romans chapter 8, 14 to 17, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. A new relationship, a new union. Remember this, a new union. By the way, 
I must say this, please, and I've heard people say it, please do not say Brother Jesus, will you? He's your Lord. If he wants to call us brother, amen, as you have it in Hebrews 2, where he says he's not ashamed to call us brethren. But you call him Lord, will you? I'm talking to you Christians. You call him Lord. Wonderful thing to know that he is our Lord. And yet we're joined to him in a bond that's beyond all human comprehension. Isn't it wonderful that God can pick up sinners, transform us into saints, and make us just like himself? Now, I'll leave that with you today. Remember, through this man Jesus is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, all sin. Receive him and pass from death to life. And the Lord bless you for his precious name's sake. He was there all the time. He was there. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study today. Write to us with your comments and your prayer requests to the Unchanging Word, P.O. Box 398, Dallas, Oregon, 97338. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Radio Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.